HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com. I'm HRN Communications Director Kat Johnson with a preview of this week's episode of Meat in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup. This week, we're focusing on water. You'll hear some disturbing news from an NYC investigative reporter. Here lies the problem, how much we don't know about water tanks. Katie Kiefer reports on water woes in the heartland. Their water is heavily polluted with nitrates, which are coming from agricultural chemical applications on fields and running off into their water table. And we'll check in with Dave Arnold, who's about to open a new bar that will serve some pretty fancy H2O. It is hardcore. So pour up a tall glass of ice water and be refreshed by this week's episode of Meat in 3, available on heritageradionetwork.org, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Japan Needs. I'm your host, Akiko Tayama, food writer and director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from a studio at Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every daily and supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi, ramen, izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, so I'll try to demystify in this program, my cool guest. My, my guest today is Chris Pierce, who is the organizer of the Joy of Sake, the largest sake event outside of Japan, which stops in Honolulu, New York, Tokyo, and for the first time this year in London. And every year, the event features 400 sake labels in one place. And uh, Chris is also the founder of the Bold Sake Imports, which brings premium Japanese sake to restaurants in the United States. And Japanese sake is increasingly popular in the U.S., which now imports the third of the total ex- sake exports from Japan. And it seems that uh, the era of sake bomb is over. And one of the key people behind the current popularity of Japanese sake is Chris, for sure. So today, uh, we'll discuss how Chris started the joy of sake, his unique background, spending years in Japan when he was very young, and the future of the sake market, and much, much more. But before we start, Japan Eats is available on Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. 
So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and subscribe to Japan Eats. And please write a review. We really appreciate your feedback. And also, if you have any ideas about、uh, topics of the show or show guests, please let us know. You can email us at japaneats@heritageradionetwork.org or kikatema.com. Now, let's start our conversation with Chris Pierce. Hello, Chris. Welcome to Japan. Hi, Aiko. Nice to be here.、Mm-hmm. So,、uh, first,、uh, let's talk about your background.、Um, I heard you、uh, spent 13 years in Japan from age 10 between 1986 and 1999 in Kyushu and Okinawa. So, how did you grow up in Japan? Did you have any adjustment necessary?、Mm. Well, I, I got there as a kid. My, my father、uh, worked for the American Embassy. And、um, so I went to junior high school and high school in Japan.、Mm. But I went to the,、um, I, I didn't go to the local Japanese schools.、Mm. So I think I was picking up, you know, awareness of Japanese culture, but I didn't really speak the language. Until I went to college there for one year.、Mm. Yeah. So you went to American school? American school.、Mm. Right. And so, but how was your exposure to Japanese culture in general? Like, you, you were still a part of Japan at the young、uh, age. Well, yeah. And the course that I took in college,、uh, there was, this was the same course that they, they taught to interpreters during the war、mm. when they needed to get interpreters quickly. <laughs> So, they would teach you, there's 1,850 Japanese characters, right, to、mm. read a newspaper. Right. So, they would teach them all to you in one year. Oh, my God. So, <laughs> this is normally like five or six years, right? So, wow. it was very I, I heard intensive. Until 12 years,、mm. uh, to, to get to 600, it takes 12 years. Like, Something like yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, as soon as you learn them, you forget them, you know, when you do it like that. But that was kind of the crash exposure. And then, Um, when I came back to Japan in my early 20s, then I, I really only spent time with Japanese people for the next seven, eight years. Mm. Mm. Right. So,、uh, mm. so now the, the natural question next is how did you get involved in sake? When I lived in,、uh, in Japan,、uh, I lived mostly in Kyushu and Okinawa, and they don't drink sake down there. Oh, Kyushu. <laughs> Nobody drinks sake. So,、uh, in Kyushu, you know, where I was in Kagoshima, everybody drinks sweet potato shochu.、Mm. And the only people that drink、uh, sake are the women's club one, <laughs> once a year on New Year's party. Wow. <laughs> the Fujinkai. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Like a rose used to be、like、in the States. <laughs>、yeah. So, it has a terrible reputation. And then you get down to Okinawa, and they have their own traditional awamori. Mm. You know, made from rice, but distilled, unlike sake, which is、right. fermented. So it's totally different. So, but we drank that and we never thought of drinking sake.、Mm. It wasn't until I、uh, got to Hawaii that I started drinking sake.、Mm. So, so you moved to Hawaii、um, for business? Or?、Uh, I had just I used every single visa I could possibly have in Japan, and I had to decide whether to become a Japanese citizen or not.、Mm. So that was it, and I decided no. So that's, that's when I、uh, went back to the United States.、Mm. Okay, and the Hawaii. Hawaii, yeah.、Mm. So,、um, so is that、uh, where you started drinking sake officially? When I got to,、um, when I got to Hawaii, of course, there was no shochu and there was no awamori. But they were making sake.、Mm. And the Honolulu Sake Brewery、uh, had been founded in 1908.、Mm. And it was the first Japanese, first、uh, sake brewery outside Japan. And you know, they made sake for the Japanese immigrant community.、Mm. And it was a very successful business, and everybody loved it and supported it. 
and uh, it shut down during the war. And then when it started up again, about 1954, um, they brought in a, they, they couldn't really do it anymore because the equipment had not been used for a long time mm. and many of the workers had retired. So they needed to get some uh, technical assistance from Japan. And they requested that a research technician be sent over. Mm. And the person who was sent over was a 28-year-old kind of wonder kind sake genius mm. named uh, Takao Nihei. And uh, he moved to Hawaii and solved all of the problems that they were having with making sake mm. in 1955. And they started bringing the sake out again. And he went back to Japan, mission accomplished, thinking that he could get on with his career. But then in a few months, they said the sake had gone bad. Wow. And uh, he was uh, called back there. And he was such a incredible sake maker that even though the sake had gone bad. Mm. He was able, able to restart the fermentation mm. and actually managed to salvage the sake. Nice. And if, the, if he hadn't done that, probably the brewery would have gone out of business. Mm. It's amazing that I even didn't know that uh, Hawaii had a first sake brewery. Oh, yeah. Yeah, in the mm. States. And uh, so I heard that uh, this uh, gentleman, uh, Takao Nihei, he, I heard he was sent by the Japanese government's uh, like a sake institute, something National like. Research Institute of Brewing. Mm. Mm. So he must have been really a kind of skilled, knowledgeable person. Well, he went. He did, he wasn't trained in sake. He was originally uh, he wanted to be a he wanted to be a um, aircraft engineer. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, with the end of World War II, that that career was not going anywhere. Mm. So, uh, but he had this technical aptitude, and he was introduced to the research institute. And once he got down there, mm. it just seems that he had a natural ability. Mm. You know. And uh, although he never graduated, I don't think he ever graduated from college. Wow. Um, but he was, uh, just had a hands-on natural ability. And the um, director of the research institute, whose name was um, Yamada, I think Masayuki, was very, very famous uh, figure in Japan in those days, kind of took Nihei-san under his wing. Mm. And uh, I think ultimately decided when they had to send someone to Hawaii that he would be the best person to send. Mm. And I mm. met him eventually, you know, in Hawaii. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, the, but by the way, the, I, I heard that the, uh, the water in Honolulu is really suitable for making sake. That's what Nihei-san said. Mm. You know, it, it's, um, it's neither soft nor hard. The water in Hawaii, um, you know, it's a volcanic island. Mm. So the, there's a, a lens of salt water, right. you know, beneath the water table that seeps in and on top of that the fresh water floats mm. and so uh, I think it's kind of young water it doesn't take that long to filter down through the lava it picks up some minerals but not that many mm. you know in California by the time the water filters down through that dry earth to the water table it picks up uh, so many minerals that it's very hard mm. hard water is water with a lot of minerals in it right. uh, Hawaii seems to be a little bit on the hard side, but uh, easy to work with, he always said. Mm. Mm, so maybe it makes like a Niigata style, cleaner, lighter. Maybe. But he always, even some of the uh, Niigata styles, though, they, they, they want to have a little more umami. Mm. They don't want it to be just clean and light, you know. Right. So the Hawaii sake was a little bit like that. And Nihisan always said, you know, this sake, 
that we're making, you know, it cannot just go with uh, sashimi and sushi. They're going to drink it with hot dogs and lao lao too. Mm. So it has to have a little punch, you know. Yeah. Well, it's okay by me. <laughs> it's just a hot place anyways. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, so the Nihei-san supposed to, I think, seems like he influenced you a oh, lot. Yeah. Someone, a, a journalist friend, took me up to his brewery maybe 1981 or something like that, and I met him for the first time. And uh, he was... Uh, one of these charismatic people, you know, he just had so much enthusiasm and he was so intelligent and he never stopped talking, you know, <laughs> and it was all interesting technical details on sake making or sake gossip, you know, about something <laughs> that he knew, you know, or what was going on in Hawaii, you know, and, and, uh, and he would bring the sake out. You know, the only sake that we drank there, I think, was his sake. But, of course, it was always very fresh because it was right from the brewery. Mm. And he used to take some of the moromi, you know, the, un, the, the, the undissolved rice from the sake and then mix it and make his own nigori sake. Mm. So we would drink that sometimes. Wow. But, you know, at that time in Hawaii, it was called Takara Masamune. That was the name of the sake. Mm. And uh, that was the high end. That was the more expensive one. That was about four fifty a bottle. Wow. And there was a cheaper one called Hula Musume. Mm. That was the Nikyo, the number two level, you know. Mm. But everybody loved that sake, and everybody drank it in Hawaii at that time. Mm. Mm. Sounds like you started from the high level of drinking sake. In a way, yeah. Right. <laughs> if you talk about jisake, that was mm. Hawaii's jisake. Mm. And it was well-respected, and people uh, came from Japan to meet him because of his innovations wow. in Hawaii. He invented some uh, sake brewing techniques that are used by breweries all over Japan now. Mm. Mm. Wow. Mm. So I'm sure that you know, we just started to see more sake brewers in the States, and I hear technical difficulties in terms of getting equipment and you know, uh, how to apply all those new weather conditions. It's not easy to make sake. Mm. So, but I think the people that are making it now, they understand that. You know, and mm. I think they're in it for the long haul. Right. Mm. Uh, we all wish Nihei-san was still alive and yeah. tell us how to do everything. Yeah. Um, so, um, so I heard that you founded the International Sake Association with other sake lovers in Hawaii. And uh, what was it and why did you found the association? <laughs> well, uh, Hawaii is really close to Japan, you know. And about a third of the pop well, at that time, about 30% of the population was Japanese-American. And a lot of people um, had business in Japan and would go back and forth. And there was a, a group of us that, you know, would meet and drink architects and my, my backgrounds in publishing and... Um, graphic designers and people like that. And we were just sitting around one night and we said, why is it when we go to Japan and we get invited to some business event, you know, or some cultural event, it is so much fun and we have such a great time. But when we go to the one at the Japanese Chamber of Commerce or the Japanese America Society, it is so boring. <laughs> what is the reason, you know? And then somebody said, you know, they, we drink sake at the ones in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> and then some kind of light bulb went off. And we said, yeah, we should have a, a group, you know, that uh, supports, you know, that, that's, that's, so we can share our enthusiasm for sake mm. and, and do events in Hawaii. Right. So it just kind of started spontaneously like that. Mm, that totally makes sense. Yeah. Right. Um, so the, um, now it's a kind of a transition. Um, let's talk about the the joy of sake because it's related to this whole movement. I mean, I think we're going to find out soon. But so what is the joy of sake? Okay, so the joy of sake, you have to go back. That's the, the first one was in 2001. Mm. 
And uh, sake has been coming into the United States, you know, you know, since the seventies, you know, for the mainly for the Japanese employees of Japanese companies, and uh, nobody would bring in sake with um, added alcohol um, because there's a higher tax for it. And uh, so as a result, some of the most delicious ginjo sakes and daiginjo sakes weren't coming into the United States. Mm. But uh, some companies started to import it a little bit in the late 1990s. And so by the time you got to like 19, in New York in 19, you know, 19, by, by 2000, you, there was starting to be some really good ginjo and daiginjo sake around. And so, but nobody understood what it was or what to make of it. And you would look at newspaper or magazine articles and say, what, you know, <laughs> what you know, is this person thinking, you know? And, and, uh, and then these kind of fraudulent uh, competitions started appearing where um, the importers would get together and give themselves gold prizes and oh, wow. promote their sake as the best one in, around, you know, and, <laughs> And so we we kind of looked at this in Hawaii, and we said, no, this isn't right. You know, we should we should have a we should if if we're going to do this kind of contest thing, we should do a, a correct contest, mm. and we should ask the National Research Institute of Brewing in Japan, which has actually been conducting a contest of sake for over a hundred years. Mm. I think it's older than anyone in the wine. I don't think wine has this kind of a severe tasting that's that old. Mm. And they are really incredibly expert, you know. Right. And ask them if they could help us have a real authentic sake judging in the United States. Mm. And surprisingly, they agreed. And yeah. we, had, we went through the Japan, the Japanese Cultural Center of Hawaii, and I think the Japan America Society, and got these kind of supporting documents. And there were people on the Japan side that thought it was a good idea and had connections to the tax office. The tax office controls the sake industry in Japan. Mm. And and uh, eventually the permits came through and they came and we invited um, a couple other Japanese senior instructors, uh, senior sensei, and some people that were not Japanese. I think um, John Galtner, you know, mm. was, was uh, one of the judges that year and a couple other people. Yeah, we he got came to the show. And he talk, did, yeah, yeah, he's a sensei of sake yeah. for everybody. <laughs> He was. I just. He was a judge at the appraisal this year in Hawaii. Mm. So he was just. He just spent three years in Hawaii, three month, three days in Hawaii, mm. judging the sakes last week. Um, but anyway, so there were 100. So we we uh, announced the what we called the U.S. National Sake Appraisal, and 124 breweries sent entries. Mm. And so they came in. This was in uh, September of 2001, and uh, so the the judging was conducted. And then a few a couple months before that, we said. Well, wait, you know, all this sake is going to be here. We're going to do the judging. We should really have a public event mm. where people can taste the entries. Mm. You know, we should do that. So so we had one, and we asked uh, eight Hawaii restaurants to uh, make a sake appetizer, and then we announced it to the public, and we sold tickets mm. you know, t- to the uh, ballroom at the Japanese Cultural Center of Hawaii. So that was kind of the start. I mean, the wow. it was the U.S. National Sake Appraisal was the start, and then to say, no, we have to share this with the public. It cannot mm. be just a closed competition with only the judges tasting these sakes. Once that's done, we have to we have to take it out to the mm. public. Wow. So it's only 17 years ago, and then it was 124. It's now 400 sake levels. This is the 18th year, and uh, uh, this year is 478. Right. That's more than ever before. Wow. Yeah. 478. Wow. 
Okay. Um, right. So, uh, so now the 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 joy of sake. That's the beginning, and then so before I forget. So the third thirteenth uh, joy of sake, New York, is New York. Is coming up this week on Friday, June fifteenth, uh, from six thirty to nine thirty, at the Metropolitan Pavilion on Eighteenth Street and Sixth Avenue. So where can we find the tickets? At joyofsake.com. Mm, okay. That's the way to do it. <laughs> okay. The, the joyofsake.com. Mm. One word. Okay. So, um, yeah, so that's amazing that it really, like, uh, it's not commercial-based. It's more like a pure, fair appreciation of sake. That's the foundation of jo- the joy of sake. That's what it is, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's the tasting event for the U.S. National Sake Appraisal. Mm. It's set up as a, you know, a nonprofit organization, 501c you know, nonprofit organization. Mm. The whole purpose is, uh, you know, um, sake education, you know, uh, advancement of sake appreciation and culture. It's just, it's one of those things, you know, for some reason, sake seems to attract all kinds of people, you know. <laughs> <laughs> they want to be a part of it, you know, they want to, they don't, they don't think about money, you know, they, mm. they just love being a part of it, you know. Mm. And we try to share that kind of aloha, you know, with this event. Mm, right. You know. Um, yeah, that's an interesting thing because I think well, the image of Japanese cuisine increased thanks to Nobu and it's like other fancy restaurants and sake is fashionable and tasty and, you know, no sake bomb anymore. You don't I see think. them anymore, do you? Yeah, yeah. it's kind of, it's too expensive to do with it, too, yeah. I think. <laughs> it's not the, well, I don't know. Maybe that's just New York, though. Maybe they're still mm. drinking in other places. I don't know. Because mm. right. mm. once you know, it's the export to the U.S. in terms of sake quality and the price increased because people started to appreciate um, higher quality, started to learn. So it's hard to go back, I think. If you have a glass of really good sake, I think it's hard to go back to a sake bomb. Right. No. <laughs> and no headache. <laughs> no headache, too. <laughs> Um, all right, so uh, the joy of sake. Now, you know, Honolulu, Honolulu is the beginning, and then you have London, and of course, New York, and um, um, so the the reason you expanded uh, to London this year. What is the reason for that? You can just kind of feel that they need it. Mm. You know that it's reached a certain point. You know where there's interest in sake, you can see that that's the only place in Europe where sake is actually move, mm. moving, you know, where right. it's, the restaurants are reordering, reordering, and it's turning over well. You can you can see that the desire is there, you mm. know, and um, so then Joy of Sake, you know, goes in and has a big event, and it just kind of changes the game, right. you know, all of a sudden, you know, you can't ignore an event with 478 sakes mm. and, you know, 16 of the best restaurants in London. Right. You know, that kind of, it's the same kind of thing that we do in New York to do it there. And it just, it's, I think it's just going to galvanize the mm. sake scene in, in London. Right. And also uh, London is, uh, you know, they have an uh, international wine challenge mm-hmm. and there's a sake division. And also London Sake Challenge, I think started in uh, 12, uh, 2012 when uh, the Olympics Happen, mm. so I think there's a tension, strong attention, um, to sake in London. I think so. Right. So okay, so it's going to be uh, September, Friday, September 28th, uh, in London. Yeah, it's going to be held at the Barbican Centre, which is kind of a cultural centre in London. Not fancy; it's kind of old, old place, but everybody knows where it is, mm. and it's big enough right. for for this. Um, but yeah, it's the first time. But I th- you know, we'll see what happens. Mm. And also, you started uh, the Joy Busaki Tokyo in 2010. So, what's the reason for that? You know, they it's just these events. You know, they they kind of have a life of 
of their, of their own. You better be careful, Akiko. Don't ever start an event. <laughs> it's, it's very hard to stop it, you know, after you, after you start one. You know? right. okay. But we did the, when we did the first one in Honolulu, then the next year, the entries dropped off. There were only less than 100 entries. And we said, oh, boy, what's going on, you know? And people said, uh, the bre- we heard from the breweries in Japan that Hawaii was such a small market for them mm. that they couldn't justify it from a business point of view. Because they still have to pay entry fee Mm. when they submit a sake to the appraisal. And they wanted to get bigger exposure. So we said, well, we better raise the bar, you know, or quit. Right. And so we decided to go to San Francisco in 2003. Mm. And so we had it uh, at the uh, Moscone Center, which is a big, big venue there. And and there was twice as many entries. Mm. And at that time, uh, San Francisco was really primed for an event like this. So it was very successful. A lot of people came. Mm. And then the next year we said, well, if it's popular in San Francisco, it's probably going to be popular in New York too. <laughs> so uh, we just, it's, it's always a gamble, right? But uh, you do it anyway. And so, <laughs> <laughs> so we went to uh, New York and that was the Puck Building. Mm. And, you know, some of your listeners may remember, but that was a very classy place, you know. Right. And huge, high ceilings. High ceilings. And we had it on both the first floor and the penthouse floor. So you would take an elevator between the two. Mm. And that was very good the first year right. and the second year. And then I think that's when they they changed, they decided not to use uh, Puck Building as a event space anymore and changed it all to retail space. And then we had it at Webster Hall a couple years. Mm. And we had it someplace in Soho. and uh, And then on the 10th year anniversary, so that would be 2011, um, we had it in Tokyo. We, should, we said we should go to Tokyo for mm. the, the 10th anniversary. Okay. Right. And so that's why it went there for that year. Mm. But then the next year was when the big um, earthquake tsunami mm. happened. And we said, well, we better not. We better just, out of respect, let's not have it. Mm. You know, let's not do it. But the brewery said, no, we want you to have it. Mm. We want to get back on our feet, you know. We want now. Now's the time to, right, to, to talk more. about sake, you know. Right. So we continued, and then we just have kept continuing. So mm. this year will be the tenth year. Wow, tenth year for mm. for but no, th- next year is the tenth year. Yeah. yeah, but it's interesting mm. that I think there's there's no other event to get get everybody together, right? In Japan, like in terms of the size, and I know that Niig- yeah. Niigata has a they have a giant one, right? And then also the uh, Nakada-san. The you know the um, soccer star, mm-hmm. he has a big event in Roppongi. Mm. Um, but this is he. he uh, I think these are cases where they saw the joy of sake mm. and they kind of adapted it, you know, right. for Japan. But yeah, there's nothing quite like it in Japan either. Mm-hmm. There's no no event in Japan where the public can taste 478 sakes <laughs> and then have these really terrific restaurants. You know, there's mm. like in in Tokyo, there's a couple of Michelin star restaurants and they call us up. Wow. To say, when does it start? We want to come next year. Nice. Yeah. Right. But it is really a win-win situation because I think uh, it attracts the uh, attention of bigger pipe consumers, I think, for, to sake because sake is co- has been competing with the shochu and other wines and all those other beverages. So. Yeah, I think so. Well, the, the, what makes it One thing that makes it different is that, well, for example, in New York, um, these sakes were, they were just, the judging, the appraisal was just held in Honolulu last week. Mm. It was on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday of last week, so less than a week ago. Mm. And those sakes were shipped from Japan for the judging at the end of March or early May, 
or early April, and they've been kept under refrigeration. Mm. Uh, and they were shipped by air, and they're in refrigeration right now in New York. So they've been, there's been an unbroken chill chain mm. you know, for, since, since they left the brewery. Wow. So they are in perfect condition. Mm. And you know, a lot of people still have not had you know, what we call a sake epiphany. Mm. You know, where they, they kind of like sake, it's okay, you know, I get it when I have sushi, but to have one that just tastes so good, that just <laughs> blows your mind, you know, mm. a lot of people haven't had that. And uh, there's a lot of sakes like that mm. at the Joy of Sake, just because they were submitted for a competition to begin with. Mm. So the brewery sent only their very best. Mm. And in addition, it's been uh, taken care of very carefully. Right. So that it's in what we call peak condition. Mm. Mm. So it's not just a... The number of sake, it's just the, the highest quality sake yeah. and kept at the perfect condition. Yeah, that's what you won't find anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Mm, right. Mm. Okay. Um, so do, do you see any changes in the U.S. market, sake market, as a result of, um, you know, uh, founding the U.S. You know, sake appraisal and joy of sake? I think it had a good influence. I don't know how big the influence is, but I think it had a good influence mm. because um, in the, it just gave people that chance, like I said, to taste really, really good sake. And so, you know, there's people coming this year. I'm sure they've been coming every year since 2001. You know, mm. It just really is a, they like it, you know, it's a unique event. Mm. And um, so I think that it probably made an impact on individual people one by one. Not the event itself, but more just, it, it, it created the opportunity for them to have mm. an experience, and a real experience that they could take away with them. And they would, you know, like sake and start sharing it with their friends, you know. Mm. It's, that's the way it is with, with sake, you know. It's just, it's all one by one, one right. person by one person. That's how it slowly grows. Mm. Mm. Right, but I think uh, Japanese restaurants are still very popular. I mean, more and more popular now in the States. So, and I heard of this when I interviewed those restaurant owners, they hear customers uh, used to be like, at the best, Junmai or Junmai Ginjo. Yeah. Now, do you have Yamaha? Right, right, right. <laughs> now, they're very knowledgeable. When the sake brewers uh, from Japan visit New York, they are always shocked by how much people know about sake here. Mm. You know, right. it's, it's a very clued in sake audience in New York. Right. Mm. Which is a celebration. <laughs> right. Um, okay, so the, uh, so the 478 sake brewers submitted to... No, there's, four, there's 192 sake breweries. Oh, there's, there's Some labels. of them submit more than one. Right, okay. so labels. Mm-hmm. So are they, are the, the brewers all uh, Japanese or can be anybody? Can be anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, there's a requirement that the sake has to be pasteurized. Mm. Because, you know, if you don't have that requirement, the sake could very easily spoil. Right. So most of the U.S. breweries right now, they're not pasteurizing their sake. Mm. It's all nama sake. Right. So it's an unpasteurized sake. And, uh, but I think by next year, they will be launching pasteurized mm. versions of their sake. Then it's safer for them to sell outside of New York mm. if they pasteurize. Right. So then we'll have, I think, more entries from the local breweries. Mm. We had them from, you know, from the California breweries. Uh, but those, those are all Japanese breweries. Right. You know. But too bad, Nama can be really good, so... <laughs> but uh, did you, do you know that we, we're going to have the U.S. breweries at this event? Um, three of them, uh, Brooklyn Kura mm. and Dovetail from Boston mm. and Moto-E from Minneapolis. Mm. Uh, they all wanted to enter or have talked to us about entering the U.S. National Sake Prize, but, but they couldn't. Mm. And so we said, okay, let's have a station 
where people can drink nama sake is made in the U.S. <gasps> nice. So there's going to be a, a U.S. nama station. Mm. So everyone can go there and taste the unpasteurized sake is made by these three U.S. breweries. Right. Mm-hmm. That is great. That's an inspiration for people. Because I think uh, it's like a French cheese. And then you want to have a cheese you tasted that was unpasteurized in France. And then you can have it here. So the same idea of it. Yeah. Same idea. And of course, because they're unpasteurized, they're very, very fresh. Mm. So it's a different kind of experience. Right. Yeah. yeah. Good for the summer, too. I think so, yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, let's take a quick break here. And when we come back, we'll talk about uh, the latest style and quality of uh, premium sake uh, made in Japan abroad. So please stay with us. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's unique store in Lower Manhattan is home to perhaps the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan, plus the rarest natural sharpening stones and exquisitely designed tableware. They also host special events such as knife sharpening demonstrations and parties with New York's most famous chefs and restaurateurs. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the implicit and elegance of Japanese culture to your table, be it in your home or in the finest restaurant. For more information, visit corin.com. Welcome back. You are listening to Japan Needs Broadcasting, broadcasting Live from a Studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm your host, Akiko Katayama, and my guest today is Chris Pierce, who is the organizer of the Joy of Sake, the largest sake event outside of Japan, which uh, stops in Honolulu, New York, Tokyo, and newly uh, new this year in London. So um, you are also the president of uh, the premium sake importer, the World Sake Imports, uh, which you founded in 1998. So why did you start the company? Well, the, um, we talked about the International Sake Association a little earlier. So they would have events like the Tanabata party, you know, or the Sakura party, you know, or the moon viewing party. And at that time, uh, you know, you could carry uh, al- bottles of sake on the aircraft. So... When everybody went to Japan, they all, we all had these uh, big bags that held five ishobim. Yeah, <laughs> which is uh, 5,000 milliliters. Five magnums, right? Five magnums, yeah, five right. Ma- <laughs> so we would bring that back. And when we had enough sake, we would have an event. Right. But then uh, then the Japanese uh, bubble economy burst, mm. and there wasn't any business in Japan for a while. So everybody stopped going. And, uh, and so we kind of ran out of sake. And mm. the, the sake that was coming into the United States then was pretty bad. They would, uh, it was not shipped in refrigerated containers. The sake that came to Hawaii would go all the way to Los Angeles, sit in a warehouse, unrefrigerated warehouse there, and then come back to Hawaii on an unrefrigerated ship and then stay in an unrefrigerated warehouse. So basically, all the sake on the shelves was bad. Wow. Yeah. So sad. So that's what that, that was what was happening. And so, um, so we, we couldn't get any sake. And, I, we were li- and we liked sake. So I said, well, you know... 
maybe just on a, kind of like a hobby, you know, um, maybe just, you know, get the licenses, you know, and at least there'll be sake that we can drink. Mm. So the first shipment was in 1999. I think we brought in 50 or 60 cases and just, you know, to sold to some Japanese restaurants that we knew. And then I uh, also had an event at the Japanese consulate, you know, and, and that was kind of the start of it. Mm. But it gets exciting. You know, once you take the sake to <laughs> the restaurant, they love it. You know, it's, oh, this is fantastic. We've been waiting like for this, you know. And then, um, you know, decided to take some to San Francisco, take some to New York. And everybody loved it because this kind of sake hadn't been coming in. This was the Ginjo sake, mm. the Dai Ginjo sake. You know? wow. And we had, we had set up the um, uh, policy of, you know, unbroken chill chain. So from the time it left the brewery till it re- reached its destination, it was all refrigerated. Mm. And we were lucky in New York to uh, find a company that kept their, the, the warehouse, there was a wine warehouse, but they had this section that they also used for a cheese warehouse. Mm. So they kept everything in there at about, at about um, 33 degrees Fahrenheit, which is perfect for sake. Mm. So they agreed to keep our sake in the cheese warehouse. Right. So we were able to put this really good sake out in New York, kind of before anybody else, you know, mm. was doing this. Right. And so then it, then it really grew quickly. Mm. Mm. So with that, it, you taste always the second grade, even if the sake itself is the first grade. So you really are the pioneer to let people taste. Yeah, I kind of, you know, but I don't think what we do is that important. You know, all we do is kind of open the gate, you mm. know, and so that it can come in, you know. Wow, but the, <laughs> the gate never opened before, so... Yeah. So yeah. Maybe help open the gate, but the the ones that really deserve the credit are the breweries in Japan, you know, for mm. making such good sake. Mm. Right, but uh, well, again, uh, America now is the biggest uh, export market of Japanese sake, and uh, I think the you also discovered those great sake breweries. I know that you are you carry amazing brewers sake labels too. That was because of Nihei-san. When, when he passed away, um, his, his wife was a friend, you know. And, and so when I said that I was interested in setting up a company, she introduced me to some breweries. And you know how important an introduction is in Japan. Mm. So on that basis, they were at least willing to consider it. Right. And so I think they, they said, well, it's, it's probably going to not amount to anything, but... You know, it's only Hawaii, so mm. why don't we just send them some sake? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's how it started. Right. But especially a conservative uh, mindset of the classic sake breweries, it must be really hard to knock on the door and then probably you say they would say no for someone strange. I think they would have without an introduction, you know, especially those breweries because they were well-known ones. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and, and I heard that uh, all the sake you carry is still treated. In the same manner, no, no well, breaking th- of the chains of refrigeration. Yeah, it's true. I mean, when we, um, when I talked to the brewers, they all came to Tokyo, you know, and they agreed to attend a meeting, and I did this presentation, you know, and I heard later on the, when they were on the train, they were saying, uh, "Let's, you know, I guess we have to we have to go to this because." Mrs. Nihei asked us, but, you know, let's just wrap this up and go home quickly. (laughs) (laughs) But one thing I did tell them, I said, just one promise, you know, the promise is that the sake, when people drink it in the United States, it will taste exactly the same Mm. as when they taste it in Japan. That was, I I said, I can't make any promises about how much we'll sell or how successful this will be, you know, Mm. but I just guarantee that the quality will be the same. Mm. Right. Mm. So right now, though, um, other importers and distributors, is it hard 
to maintain that refrigeration condition? Oh, anyone anyone can do it. You just you just have to pay for the additional cost, mm. you know. And I think all almost all of them do it now. Mm. It's, it's everyone's advantage. It's to their advantage, you know. Right. For other importers, so I think it's probably pretty common practice now. Mm. Mm. Well, when it comes to you know unbroken refrigeration and then drives in retail stores or consumers, it could be broken totally. So, do you have any suggestions how they should? Keep well, the I don't, we we don't sell it to a to a retail store unless they refrigerate it. Okay. So that's that's really the best way to do it. Mm. Uh, some sake, some of Junmai sakes are pretty sturdy. You know, they can keep it okay mm. on the shelf. But it's what happens when you have a delicate daiginjo right. sake or something mm. like so that. So, what's the temperature you suggest for high high quality for consumers and retails? They should really um, uh, in the stores. They should keep it. You know, in the low 40s, you know, mm. you know, if, it, if you don't want the flavor to change. I mean, sometimes it can stay on the shelf for quite a while. Right. And also sometimes exposed to sunlight through the that's, window. Yeah, that changes it very quickly. Right. Just a couple of days and that's it. Mm. You know, sake is uh, more sensitive than wine. You know, the wine has the high acidity, mm. which acts a little bit like a preservative, you know. And uh. the acidity of wine is four or five times higher than sake. Mm. 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 That's important. So non-sunlight and uh, 40s, low 40s. Yeah. Right. Okay, um, so the so you could focus on um, your your world sake imports uh, clients or restaurants. So why why is that? I think restaurants are where sake education occurs. Mm. You know, if you go to a restaurant, you know you uh, if you walk into a Japanese restaurant, especially, I mean, you're open to trying sake. Mm. You know, and if there's good sake on the menu there, you'll have a good sake experience. Mm. And if your server knows something about sake because he's gotten some training or just experience, you know, you know you'll learn something about sake too. Mm. So I, th- I think that the restaurants are the sake classrooms. Right. Mm. And I, I know some servers who became sake experts because they tasted sake at the restaurants and they were into that expert. So what do you think in general, the level of knowledge of uh, restaurant uh, servers and staff people? Well, there's two kinds of knowledge, right? There's there's intellectual knowledge and there's sensory knowledge. Mm. Okay, intellectual knowledge you can learn from a book. You know, what's a junmai sake? What's a daiginjo sake? Mm. Sensory knowledge is your tasting ability. Right. You know, so I think um, there's lots of both of those um, expertises in New York. Mm. You know, the sensory one is the most difficult. Right, yeah. right. It's kind of inborn, and you have to really train. Otherwise, it, you have to train. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to train and practice. You, you can't, you know, be satisfied with "I like it." Mm. That's not enough. I know. analyze. Yeah, you have to kind of try to understand it. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you can practice by drinking. So that's the only way to practice. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, okay. So, uh, and we have. Um, Multiple premium sake brewers we like we talked about like you know like three uh, presenting nama the the job sake but um how what do you think about um the quality of sake made in the u s in general it's hard to, because it's nama and unpasteurized it's hard to compare it with the pasteurized sakes um but I know that uh, they're really trying hard you know and mm. look, using different yeasts and things like that and i've had um I had one daiginjo made by one of the um, breweries on the West Coast. I think it was uh, Takara, using California rice. It was really good, mm. you know. And I had the Dasai's made a sample. They've gotten the California rice and taken it back to Japan mm. and used it as a kind of a sample of what they want to do in New York. Interesting. So I tried that, and that wasn't bad, mm. you know. So it can be done, you know. It's not 
you know, it's not impossible, you know. And I'm, I'm sure that the U.S. breweries have their sights set on that. Mm. And also I heard uh, uh, the American brewers uh, often, not, I'm not sure how often, but um, they use Carlos Carlos uh, rice, which is not the Sakamai. Right? So that works. I tasted them, and it's pretty good, too. So. Yeah, you know, it's not that you can't make sake out of non-brewing rice. It's just that you have to be more careful. Mm-hmm. It's more difficult, you know, because the grains are smaller, you can't polish them as much, and, and things like that. Mm. Right. And also, um, you know, how do you break the future of, um, you know, sake um, made outside of Japan, not just the U.S., but I know that there's uh, uh, the sake breweries in Europe, like U.K., Spain, Norway, France, and, and so forth. So have you tasted those sake? I had, I think I had one or two of them, but, you know, the, they really wouldn't stand up to the standard, you know, if you want to use that word, of, a, mm. of what, a, what a good sake should be in Japan. It's, it, it, it's a sake because it's made from rice, but if you, you know, look at the qualities like the balance, you know, and the aroma and the taste, you know, and mm. overall harmony, um, you know, I, I think the, one, the American ones I've had were better. Mm. Mm. Right. So the market is bigger here, too, and the longer history of the wind drinking sake is. Yeah, but on the other hand, consumers are more knowledgeable here and more discriminating, right? So, I mean, I think that the U.S. breweries have to make really good sake, you know, Mm, that will compete on a taste level. Mm. I really like the idea that, you know, they use a local yeast, for instance, and uh, I think Koji still, they tried to get from Japan, but that kind of localized experimentation is really interesting. I'd be surprised if they're using local yeast. I mean, the, the yeast from Japan is... Um, I mean, all of the... I think they're probably using a yeast from Japan or a variation of it. Mm. I think uh, Brandon and uh, uh, Brian from Brooklyn Kula, mm. he came on the show. I think uh, they are trying to experiment local yeast too. So they don't have to bring it in from Japan all I the think time. they do so far, but yeah. uh, they are trying to experiment. Oh, okay, that, that makes sense then too. They can, they can propagate the yeast once, it's, mm. once they have it. Right. And then it will, it'll kind of like adapt to their environment somewhat. Mm. You have a number of breweries in Japan where they say, oh, this is our yeast. Mm. But it started out as one of the basic yeasts that right. all the breweries use, but they use it themselves you know, year after year, and then finally they say, well, it's, it's a little different now. Mm. It's, it's a distinctively different yeast, and it's our yeast. Right, and, we, and uh, combining with uh, the local rice and those different elements and air and the water, it could be a unique local sake outside what, Japan. Yeah, no, that, that would definitely happen. Mm. Mm. Right, and uh, now the speaking of Japanese uh, breweries, you know, the, the sake is getting global um, more than ever. So... Um, the, you know, the, the Japanese traditional sake breweries uh, might be aware how the global market is changing, the palette may be different. Are they changing any style? Or? It's, a, it's, a, it's a real bad thing to do. Mm. You know, if, you, if you're a Japanese brewery and you have your style, uh, you should stick with it. Right. You know, you know. So they haven't, you haven't no, seen any? it's not a matter of them adjusting to the customer. The customers have to kind of appreciate what they're doing. Mm, right, that's mm. right. It's kind of, kind of part of education. Yeah. Yes. Right. So speaking of, uh, you brought uh, the current, <laughs> the late, the really excellent style sake. So should we open and try it? Yeah, let's do that. Okay, so can you do that? Well, this is a sake from a brewery in Guma Prefecture mm. uh, called Seitoku Shuzo. And I know, the, I know the brewer, he was a 
student of a famous sake sensei named Kuromiya uh, Chieko-san, uh, mm. female sake sensei. Okay. And she actually wrote the textbook on how to make ginjo sake that's used by breweries. Mm. And so uh, she was famous for the lightness and balance of her sakes. Right. So, um, so the lightest. Oh, this is a daiginjo. What kind of uh, migaki? This is probably this is forty percent polishing ratio. It uses mm -hmm. the Yamada Nishiki rice, mm -hmm. um, and because it's made in Guma uh, Prefecture and also in um, also in uh, Ibaraki Prefecture, the aroma is a little bit different. You know, the aroma for the sakes in Tohoku is more fruity, like, um, you know, more like a conventional melon or apple or something like that. This one is a kind of a ripe mm. fruit, more like um, more like a lychee, okay. something like that. Just a, mm. It's actually, you shouldn't say anything about a sake before someone, <laughs> someone tastes it, you know. Right. But the Tohoku is cooler and the guma is slightly lower. Yeah, Southern. there's got to be some other reason. I don't know. I think if you mm. looked into it, you could figure it out. Mm. Mm. But it's so floral. Mm. It's like a even pear. Clean. Wow. Wow, so flowery too. Yeah, and this, this actually, this is one of the sakes that people can taste at the Joy of Sake. Oh, wow. And it, it won a gold medal at the national... Um, appraisal in Japan, mm. which has about a thousand entries, all daiginjo, mm. and they also won a gold medal at the U.S. National Sake Appraisal oh, wow. last week. So mm. this this will be, and there's a number of sakes at um, at the appraisal at the at the Joy of Sake in New York that are like that. Mm. So it's called the Seitoku. That's the sake. So that the Joy of Sake, you should try, listeners. Um, okay. All right. So. Um, yeah, so what's your plan? <laughs> now we get to see if, after having drunk sake, your questions change in any way. <laughs> <laughs> so what would you do like? <laughs> yeah, so um, what's your next plan? Are you planning to um, expand Not, the J-Pacific? No, I just, I just I'll see, to see if London mm. is a success, see if it works, you know. Right. The other thing that we are trying to do is the, um, the sake sensory appraisal. Mm. There's a... You know, there's a program that they have in Japan for teaching the brewers, um, mostly brewers, um, about aroma, about taste, mm. so that they can blend correctly. Ah. You know, and it's a very, what is, how, how to taste sake so that you can make it professionally. Mm. That kind of, so it's a very strict and difficult course. And you have the, uh, that license or the, how do you call, um, you have the expert sake well, like, advice, appraiser. I, <laughs> I managed to get through the course, you know. Mm. But I had to keep. I had to go back three times and keep taking it because it's wow. it's very difficult because there's no no book study. Mm. It's all about can you tell tiny little differences in sweetness? Can you tell tiny little differences in acidity? Mm. Can you recognize a certain aroma? Wow, you know, like that. Mm. You know, so it's all about your senses, and uh, most of us aren't used used to using our senses that way. Mm. So it's a it's a four day course. And all you do all day long is, is take have drills, mm. training drills and tests, training drills and tests, and then wow. explanations in between. So we made a um, U.S. version of it. Um, that's only two days, and mm. it's been held three times so far. 
Wow. So it's, it's, it's been held each time in Hawaii. It's, it's complicated because you have to, I think the aroma, there's 12 different aromas that are identified and, um, and kind of presented to the students so that they can understand them and recognize them. Mm. And there's a, you're, there's a profiling of the sake where, you know, you are asked to identify the taste components, you know, with the sweetness, the acidity, the bitterness, the umami, mm. you know, things like that. And how much? Is it a little bit? Is it a lot? You know, and same thing for the different aromas. And it, um, taking a course like this, uh, it really changes the mm. way that you, and everyone fails. <laughs> Nobody's ever passed it the first wow. time. So mm. when did you start it? I took it about 10 years ago, I think. Okay. And then, um, and then I, then I had, I, I retook it a couple times and then, um, then we had, we offered it for the first time in Hawaii four or five years ago. Mm. And now since we've had it maybe three times, maybe four times now, but it's a big deal because it takes a, it takes a technical team to make the samples. Mm. You know, one day, one day samples, maybe you make, maybe you make, uh, 80, hundred different samples for 12 people. It's like 12, 1200 samples. It's a lot of work. It's a huge amount of work. And, mm. it has, and it's work that has to be done accurately by people that have, you know, a technical, at least, you know, at least careful people, you know, right. you can't just ask wow. anyone to do it. Mm. Mm, it's like a master sommelier kind of. <laughs> I don't know if there's anything quite like this. Right. You know, because, because it's it, so, so sensory. Well, it's so okay. focused just on, it's mm. just on what is this sake? Right. You know, there's nothing about how to serve it. There's nothing about what kind of food it goes mm. with, you know. Right. So uh, um, if our listeners are interested, where can we find that, how to take the test, an American I, version? Um, the only place it's held now is in Hawaii. It's, it's probably going to be held in, in December. Mm. Um, but we would love to find some way to get it, you know, okay. to New York. Uh, what's mm. the title of the it's course? called the Sake Sensory Appraisal. Okay. Mm. U.S. I'm, Sake Sensory Appraisal. Mm. I'm interested. Okay. <laughs> I have to it's keep fascinating. Thinking. It's totally yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Right. But it's like, a, do you think, you know, some, uh, I, when I studied uh, wine, um, like a kind of a certification, I really tried to sense it very intensely. And it was sharpened. So you have to, it's like me playing a music. If you just don't practice, the next days you're not so good. But kind of like you have to keep practicing very intensively. Right? I think that's true. Mm. So I have to keep drinking as I get a lot. <laughs> but you drink it differently when you drink it that way, you know? Mm. Like these, you know, these, for example, these, these sensei that come over here for the, you know, for the appraisal, you know, if you ever go out with them um, in Japan, you might go to some restaurant and every, every, um, you know, the, the sake might not be that famous, you know, mm. and it might not be that fantastic either. But as you kind of chat with them and, you know, talk about the sake, each one is a unique expression, you know, of that mm. particular brewery, you know, right. whether it's well made or badly made, you know, or, or whether, you know, whatever you have to say about the aroma or the taste, you know, it's a, it is what they made, mm. you know. And that's why Takao Nihei-san said this. There's no such thing as a bad sake. Mm, interesting. You know, it's, a, it's all a cultural expression, you know. Right. Within that context, you can say, okay, these are certain criteria for a gold medal, you know, mm. sake. If it meets these levels, you know, it gets a special award. But mm. at another level, you know, they're all right. genuine interesting. expressions of sake. Right. And whenever you uh, travel, the local drink tastes better than going back, back home. So That's true, yeah, as you travel around Japan. Mm. Right. 
Okay. Um, so, excellent. So, thank you so much for joining us today, Chris. What? That's an hour already? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> More sake, please. <laughs> right. Okay, so listeners, uh, the, the 13th Job Sake in New York is uh, coming up this week on Friday, June 15th, uh, 6.30 to 8.30 at the Metropolitan Pavilion on 18th Street and 6th Avenue. For tickets, uh, please go to joybsake.com, thejoybsake.com. And if you have any questions or comments about the show uh, or suggestions for show topics or guests, please contact us at japanese.heritageradionetwork.org or kikukatema.com. And Japanese is live at 3, 3 p.m. on Mondays and always available at heritageradionetwork.org, iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. Uh, engineer, our engineer is David Tatashore, and thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>